Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week it's all about the big sell-off on Wall Street last night. 4% on the NASDAQ and 3.5% on the Dow and the S&P 500. So we turn to Kyle Rodder, the market analyst at IG Markets, to take us through what actually happened, and Jared Minnock of Minnock Advisors to tell us what it means. And to link it to the economy, we're talking to Stephen Kukoulos, Managing Director of Market Economics. But of course, we always need some politics in talking finance. And this week, it's Mark Kenny, National Affairs Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, to talk about Scott Morrison's tax cut bonanza. And for our weekly check on technology, it's Steve Sammartino, author and futurist, to talk about Facebook's new piece of hardware called The Portal. Here's Carl Rodder, the market analyst at IG Markets. Carl, perhaps you could just take us through what happened last night. Yeah, so we saw a major shift in equity markets as uh, the prospect of higher global rates has uh, continued to be priced in. I think a lot at this point in time can be sort of attributed to it at a level of market psychology where we haven't got a great idea as it stands at the moment where yields may climb to on the back of uh, the most recent move. Um, obviously, it starts stretching valuations uh, quite considerably um, and uh, there's there's the potential for a sort of a yield play uh, in less risky assets outside the stock market. Um, so we really saw um, stocks with what has been you know fairly fairly stretched valuations, um, say in the uh, in the tech space in particular. But you can draw the parallel uh, on the ASX to say the healthcare sector and the likes of you know CSL Cochlear over the last couple of days uh, go well out of vogue. Um, traders effectively and investors exiting those positions. Um, and as that's taken hold, we've seen a broader sell-off uh, in, in the equities market um, as, uh, as you know, traders do as well take advantage of, um, you know, what, what has been some fairly fruitful times uh, and take profit until there's a little bit more certainty around what, uh, what the picture looks like in terms of global interest rates. It is noticeable that the biggest falls are on the NASDAQ. Netflix down yes. 8%, NVIDIA 7.5%, Amazon 6.2% and so on. So, you know, quite... Big chunky falls by those, as you say, uh, high valuation technology stocks. Mm, yeah, no, exactly. And and this is the thing in these in these times. There's obviously less risk appetite in the market, um, and as a result, you, you're much less inclined to take a punt on these companies, which you know may not be drawing a huge profit at this point in time. They may have valuations or, or PE ratios of say 50 to one. Um, and in a backdrop where uh, monetary policy is a little bit tighter, you look down the line and corporate profits may not be uh, quite um, as uh, as strong as uh, as they currently are. Well, it's um, it's not an, ir- an irrational decision to um, you know basically bank your gains on those particular stocks, or if you're an investor looking to jump in the market, avoiding um, those stocks in particular. So, yeah, we've seen that really uh, manifest across the tech space. And you know, it must be obviously um, mentioned too that a, a lot of these sort of record gains that we've seen across U.S. equities this year have been driven by ac- uh, activity uh, in tech stocks. So, um, without them underpinning this sort of bullish run higher, in fact, those positions being unwound, then it's uh, then it's quite a, a natural phenomenon for for, for the markets uh, more generally. These uh, the major indices that we're seeing, particularly the Nasdaq, as you mentioned, uh, to sell off quite considerably. Um, and you know, until again we get a bit of better idea of what the uh, the global rate situation will be, um, so you can start valuing these things a little bit more appropriately, and uh, then you'd expect that uh, the dynamic to continue into the future. 
um, a bit of panic selling as, as the bears start to take hold here. It is interesting that, I mean, as you say, a lot of it's a lot of the correction has been driven by rising US bond yields. But last night and the night before, the 10-year bond yield actually went down. It peaked uh, two days ago at 3.23 and now is back down to 3.16. So the, the market is correcting despite a retracement in the bond yield. Yeah, well, I think this was an interesting one. Uh, and, uh, you know, for me, it was quite, you know, I, I get in every day at about five o'clock or so. The yield on the 10-year then was still at about 3.22%. Uh, we topped out at about 3.25 a couple of days ago. I think this is what goes down to the fundamental dynamic here as to why you see a, a liquidation of positions in the equity market. First and foremost is that getting a read on where yields may climb to um, is difficult to determine at this point in time. Uh, so that level of uncertainty until you can uh, feel as you can price things appropriately um, and the market is starting to take account of all available information it means that you're less likely to either keep hold of risks or you might sell out of the market um, you know, while um, that information uh, starts to come to light. Uh, the other thing too is um, it's while you're seeing yields uh, fall now, it's very much in the back of the fact that in the, in the last hour of the US session, there was a real considerable spike in volatility and therefore it was well and truly risk off. So we started seeing a haven play into, into US treasuries. So that, um, that dynamic that we saw play out where yields are now roughly about 3.16% uh, on the 10-year is something that's only happened in the last couple of hours. Uh, so this is very much just a, a live story, a live uh, live sort of set of movements. Um, and uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that markets aren't entirely comfortable and aren't entirely aware of where uh, yields should fall. And as a result, we're seeing a lot of uh, volatility. Does it feel to you like the beginning of a larger correction, Kyle? I think if you look at where we are, where we're at potentially in the economic cycle, I think it stands to reason that perhaps we're reaching what you might call a, a distribution phase in profits, where we've seen uh, fundamental growth um, very, very strong, at least in the United States, um, over the last say 12 to 18 months. Um, we've seen uh, the concurrent uh, bull run in, in the stock market. Now, as we approach uh, a stage in the economic cycle where capacity is being reached, there's a, the, the necessity for higher interest rates. It starts to stand to reason that perhaps that growth phase is starting to slow down. We're looking at a period of consolidation potentially, and then you start looking towards further to that, perhaps uh, the next uh, contraction uh, in the medium to long term. So you, you, you'd make, based on you know, economic orthodoxy, a fairly strong argument that perhaps we've reached somewhat of a top here, um, that we're going to see a, a rotation into, into more defensive sectors uh, in the share market uh, before we really do see this pickup in interest rates that the Fed have flagged. Um, you know, effectively lead to the end of end of a cycle, um, and uh, you know what is obviously in effect the uh, the end of a bull run. So I think that idea is is one that's starting to to, to gain traction in the market. It'll be very interesting to see how that um, flows through into earnings uh, in the next couple of weeks to months in the US. Um, but yeah, certainly it's starting to feel as though that uh, maybe the good times of bull runs come to somewhat of an end. Um, and not that necessarily will be leading to a, a massive correction in the market here, uh, but perhaps, yeah, that the bull run is over um, and that we're looking to, a, to the next stage in the cycle. Thanks very much, Kyle. Have a good day. Thank you very much.
now here's Jared Minak of Minak Advisors for his thoughts on what happened last night and what it means. Jared, obviously the markets uh, sold off last night. Do you think it's just just a reaction to the bond yield going above three percent a little while ago, and now it stayed there? Bit of a delayed reaction to that. Oh, Alan, I think there's a few things going on. Um, firstly, it, it's an expensive market. Um, the US this year has been the exceptional market. It's up. Most other markets are down. So it, it looks expensive both in absolute terms and increasingly uh, expensive relative to other markets. So that, that increased the market's vulnerability. Uh, secondly, yes, I, I think the rise in bond yields uh, exacerbates that appearance of expensiveness, and that was a factor. Uh, associated with that is uh, a recognition, I think, the Fed's going to be more hawkish than people have been expecting. Uh, this has been a story, to be fair, for a little while, but uh, some recent Fed comments suggested that they were not about to pause in their tightening, and therefore there would be more rate increases uh, coming, one in December and then a few more next year. Uh, lastly, I'd argue that um, perhaps markets are sitting up and taking note of what I think is a huge, potentially huge shift uh, in American policy towards China that could have huge ramifications for how business is done and could potentially affect uh, the tech leading stocks that had really carried this rally this year. So there's a real laundry list of factors I think that are at, at play and that could mean that you know we're on a, a new rockier path. It's not just a one-day correction. Um, it points the way to now uh, lower returns in inequities, uh, potentially for the balance of this cycle. In your latest note, you had a, ch- a chart of the prospective price earnings ratio. It's one I've seen before that you do for the S and P five hundred, and shows the obviously shows uh, that importantly, uh, every time there's a Fed tightening cycle. The market derates quite a fair, uh, quite a lot, and more than yes. more than the market has derated this time, which would suggest there's more to no. go. Yes, that's right. I mean, I was surprised, uh, and it was a, a big reason why equities did better last year than I was expecting at the start of two two seventeen, um, because I was arguing that normally markets lose valuation when the Fed is tightening. And of course, last year, we saw them gain valuation, which was partly in anticipation uh, towards the end of last year, the Trump tax cuts. Uh, now now it's payback time. And this is, this is completely normal market behaviour. Um, it's typically what you see late in the cycle. What's also been typical is that the, the leadership of the market has been narrowing. Um, this year has basically been in a global equity sense, uh, the US all bust. Uh, and in a US equity context, it's almost been uh, the big tech stocks all bust. And that narrowing of market leadership is also something that you typically see late in a cycle. So it, it's just a cycle showing its age. I really appreciate your time, Jared. Thank you. You're welcome, Alan. We'll speak again. And now for our weekly economics chat, here's Stephen Kukoulos, Managing Director of Market Economics. And of course, we'll turn to some extent to the markets. Well, Stephen, big fall on the market last night. What's your perspective on that? 
Yeah, it's a big fall. I think uh, always hard to find reasons for a 24-hour move in uh, in stock markets. But what we've been seeing over the last few months is that back up in US government bond yields, you know, three and a quarter percent for the 10-year yield, linked in part, of course, to the Fed interest rate hikes that we've been also witnessing through the course of the last year or two. So perhaps it's the markets just taking stock on yeah, perhaps the um, alternative investments of bonds are a fraction more attractive as yields go up. And also, I think some of the uh, sugar hit to the economy from the Trump tax cuts uh, earlier are perhaps starting to fade. So uh, in, in a way, it's it's nothing too catastrophic at this stage. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a big move. And um, it's certainly signalling perhaps that uh, we, we're, we're due for that uh, bit of a pullback in prices after a stunning run up. Seems to be also partly caused by the trade war concerns. Are you getting worried about that? Yeah, it's really hard to call that one because you're hearing different stories virtually by the day or certainly by the week on how they're unfolding. And uh, But nonetheless, anything that escalates those trade wars is not good news for the global economy and things that aren't good for the global economy aren't good for the business sector. So to the extent that we're seeing uh, retaliatory moves from the, from the Chinese, we're also seeing the Chinese economy cooling by the way too we shouldn't ignore that uh, um it, it's got some its own problems just uh, last week it trimmed its reserve requirement ratio effectively easing monetary policy and they don't do that unless their economy is a bit softer so trade wars are also very important here but we'll just have to wait and see how they play out because they're going to be a a more longer term issue although having said that we do know that they're putting up price pressures in the US that's higher inflation into an already strong economy and that's uh, um, certainly causing the market to price in more rate hikes over the next six to 12 months. So as you say it's hard to tell whether we're into a correction on the share market but we are well into a correction on the Australian housing market 12 oh, months yes. 12 months into it so what do you think the impact on the economy of that is going to be? Yeah, it, well, we do know that the biggest asset that uh, Australian households have is is their house. Uh, I think it was around right about $7 trillion worth at last count. And not that there's a an automatic or a, a very strong and immediate relationship between house price changes and, and consumer spending and wealth. But that said, for a lot of investors who sort of bought in at the high, they took the interest-only loans, which, of course, are slowly uh, fading to turn into interest and principal loans, so their repayments are going up. That impacts on the cash flow, of course. And now you've got an asset whose prices are falling. It's not a great dynamic. Throw in the prospect of Labor's negative gearing rule changes uh, post-election, if they happen to win, uh, limiting negative gearing to new dwellings, stopping it for established dwellings, and you've got a you've got a, uh, a mix of events there that's suggesting that housing is going to be weak. Now that said, we do know that when house prices are weak, uh, consumer spending, household spending does weaken. Uh, you can look at that on a state by state basis uh, over the last couple of years, where you know, up until a year ago, where Melbourne and Sydney were basically booming, retail spending in those two states was strong. Uh, WA, which of course got hit by the mining slump a couple of years ago. Um, had falling house prices, lo and behold, consumer spending in WA was weak. So there is a correlation there. So any further falls in house prices over the next little while, which I think looks pretty likely, is going to have a neg negative impact on uh, consumer wealth and consumer spending. In fact, you've been calling that the next rate move will be down, the interest rate move by yeah. the Reserve Bank will be down. So do you, do you still reckon that? 
I still half reckon it. <laughs> Look, it's not a strong conviction um, call at this stage. But put it this way, they're certainly not going to hike while these dynamics are unfolding. And while I didn't necessarily anticipate the fall in share prices that we're now seeing, if this is a start of, uh, of even just a period of moderate weakness, you know, maybe the um, ASX sort of consolidates below 6,000 points and, you know, even without anything more severe than that, it's just sort of not the dynamic uh, where we've got this housing issue that we just discussed really causing the RBA to move. Now, obviously, if we do get house prices coming off another, oh, I don't know, 1% to 2% per quarter over the next year, if the, a if the ASX does weaken, and more importantly, arguably, if we don't get that pickup in wages that the RBA has really been hoping for, if we do not get that over the next six months and these other dynamics are there, well, yeah, the, the door's open for a rate cut. Now, whether they pull it or not, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Good on you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Alan. Cheers. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now here's Mark Kenny, National Affairs Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Well, Mark, it seems to the, the election campaign is beginning to take shape now. We've got the, the coalition government locking in tax cuts, bringing forward the tax cuts for small businesses and, and proposing to legislate that. And the Labor Party seems to be focusing on spending. So it seems to be a tax cuts versus spending election coming up. Would that be how you see it? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's probably a, a pretty reasonable reduction of it. And I guess to that extent, it, it conforms with, uh, you know, the stereotypes that are often applied to uh, major political parties, that the coalition is uh, concerned with uh, smaller government and with, uh, you know, a more uh, sort of rigorous uh, containment of the, of the budget. And the Labor Party is more concerned with services and more inclined, therefore, to, uh, to tax and spend. And that's certainly going to be the way each side is going to depict the other. Uh, it was inevitable, I think, that uh, the government would do this with bringing forward these small business tax cuts because um, it changes the political calculus. And, of course, we know they were blocked on delivering uh, tax cuts for all businesses. They tried valiantly under Malcolm Turnbull to, to do that over and over again, having promised it at the 2016 election, uh, you know, and therefore having presumably a mandate for it but just not being able to get it through the Senate. So... Uh, frustrated on that, they had to find a way forward, and this is the logical way forward for them because it allows them to talk about uh, business tax cuts that will apply to some 3 million businesses and do so in the next term of Parliament. That's quite a, a good story to have to tell, and, and, and as you say, it marks for a good contrast uh, in, in political and economic terms between the two sides. And legislating it before the election campaign means that Labor has to say, perhaps promise, that it will repeal that legislation which is a big thing to do. Well, I mean, it's, it's, one thing, it's one thing not to actually tax ca cut taxes, but another entirely to repeal a tax cut bill. That's right. I mean, as you say, it's a, a politically much more fraught activity because uh, the government's going to be making a pretty persuasive case that uh, particularly for smaller businesses, that uh, if you can lower their wages or lower their tax bill, uh, that, that there will be more room in those uh, business budgets for higher wages. Of course, wages, flat wages, is a, a really deep problem for the economy and for and for the government because there just hasn't been any real progress on that despite the economy being in pretty good shape. So, uh, you know, I think it's uh, obviously a, a strong political uh, position for the government to have and for Labor, the idea of, uh, of 
And having those tax cuts, as you say, sort of made made in law, even though they wouldn't necessarily be delivered yet, and then have them uh, taken away by a future Labor government, um, it's a difficult one for Labor to sell that, I think. So how do you how do you think Labor's going to respond to this? What do they have to do? Well, it's not out of the question that Labor could decide to agree to this timetable. Um, at this stage, that seems probably unlikely, but the government intends to fund it largely from the dividends from, you know, increased revenue from a growing economy, and therefore that's money that's available to Labor as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're yet to see how Labor's going to respond, but I think there might be some movement from its current position. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, had outright opposition to the tax cuts for big business, um, and it's had a problematic position in relation to tax cuts for smaller businesses. When I say problematic, I mean in the political sense. Bill Shorten got himself into a bit of trouble uh, trying to articulate you know, where the cutoff would be some time ago. So I think this is a work in progress and it will be interesting to see how Labor responds to this challenge uh, and whether in fact it alters its policy. Do, do you think that the um, Labor proposals on negative gearing and dividend franking are going to be a big problem for them? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I, I think that the flattening of the housing market, uh, the, the reduction in, uh, in some markets of, of house prices uh, has sort of taken the heat out of the, uh, the issue a little bit in terms of negative gearing and uh, capital gains tax concession. But I think the policies that Labor is proposing there probably have broad support. It's not just uh, people who are in houses and who are worried about the value of their asset that uh, Labor is concerned about here. Most people have uh, have uh, kids that are you know, struggling to get into the housing market or will struggle to get into the housing market when that time comes. Uh, we know that there are you know tax concessions that that effectively allow people to uh, to get a tax break on their fourth or sixth or eighth uh, uh, property when other people just can't afford to break into the housing market at all. So it's a very real problem in uh, in Australian society, and it's it's quite broadly understood. And I think Labor is uh, uh, onto something uh, reasonably solid there. Um, you know, there'll be a, a scare campaign run by the government on it, but uh, broadly. Broadly speaking, I think Labor's uh, got the politics uh, got the politics right. Thanks very much, Mark. Have a good day. Thanks, Alan. I'm joined now by author and futurist Steve Samatino to talk about the new Facebook portal. Hey, Steve, what's a Facebook portal? Yes, yeah, so a Facebook portal, which was announced yesterday was Facebook's first foray into a hardware product. As you know, the battle for the kitchen and the living room has uh, come on full scale with Amazon Alexa and Google Home and Apple HomePod. And Facebook, who swore they would never be anything but a software company, have now taken the move into hardware. And uh, the Facebook portal is like a little camera or almost like a laptop or a, a, uh, a tablet that sits up with a screen and a camera so that you can have a, like a little FaceTime chat or like a Skype chat using the Facebook Messenger device to uh, have a little chat with the world's least trusted technology company that now wants to have a, uh, I guess, take their surveillance capitalism to the next level. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. So they're going to be watching us while we're in the kitchen. 
heavens above. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, they're going to be watching us in the kitchen. And, and, and look, I can't help but think that, um, you know, the, the trust levels that Facebook have, you know, it seems every other week there's another privacy scandal or a hacking scandal. In fact, they had one just last week where 50 million people got hacked, including Mr. Zuckerberg and his uh, COO, Sheryl Sandberg. And this product was apparently meant to be launched right at the height of when the Cambridge Analytica scandal came out and they delayed it. And so they've said that the device doesn't record the video chats and it doesn't keep it on the cloud servers either. It's kept on the device itself. But here's where it gets really interesting, Alan, is that the terms and conditions that come with the product, which goes on sale on November 1st, they can be changed at any point in time. And that's what's really different about tech products is that they have terms and conditions where you buy a physical product with certain <laughs> things that are in place or ideas, but they can change if the terms and conditions change. And Facebook have done that before. Their most famous bait and switch was when they said to brands and corporations out there, I mean, many of the people listening probably had brands that they went out and invested money to get people to like their brand pages and their company pages so that they could reach their consumer and fan base for free. And then Facebook said, oh, yeah, by the way, we changed our mind on that. Now, even though you might have a million likes, if you want to reach those people who've liked your page, you now have to pay to advertise to reach them. And we're now very close to zero organic reach for branded company pages. So I think that this move here is to, you know, we should be suspicious. Nobody reads the term terms and conditions anyway. Well, that's why we need regulation in tech. I mean, every time I think about regulation, I think I'm so happy that Airlines are regulated when I catch a plane. I'm really happy that cars are regulated and they have brakes and roads and food when I have packaged goods. And technology needs to be regulated so that the companies can't develop their own sets of terms and conditions. And then if a hardware product is sold, the terms and conditions shouldn't be allowed to be changed once the product enters people's hands, I think. Um, you know, interestingly, it comes with a little, a little thing that you can put over the camera to stop it, which I find, you know, just ironic and crazy that if you don't trust the company that much, you have to put a little uh, camera swath across it so that no one can see it. That, that, that's kind of a bit crazy. And I think the way that they'll make money out of it, Alan, I mean, it, it might be good for Facebook shareholders, is that uh, with the facial recognition software that they've got and image recognition, they'll be able to see what's in your kitchen. So let's say you're having a chat in the kitchen and you open the fridge, all of the brands that you have in your fridge, if the camera pans across and it sees that, it will be able to ping and say, you know, here's, a, here's this, this brand of cheese and this brand of yogurt and see all of those and then be able to serve up ads on your Facebook feed in other areas for the products or the brands that you've got or complementary products. So that's clearly what the commercial play is. Right. Can't wait. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's, that's the point. That social media was awash with people saying, gee, yeah, I'll order 10 of those. Let's get one in every room so that, you know, they can uh, send me, send me uh, advertisements for divorce lawyers when I'm having a fight with my wife. I mean, is that is that the kind of world we want to live in? <laughs> is this thing going to operate like a personal assistant or, you know, those uh, Alexa or Google Home? Can you talk at it as well? Yes. Yeah, so it does. So what it has is it has voice recognition uh, and you'll say, hey, portal to activate it. So it's always listening because it's got that audio capture element. And interestingly, Facebook have done a deal with Amazon where they're using the Alexa voice engine that Amazon has got, which is probably the best voice engine on the market, uh, to facilitate the usage of the device, which says that Facebook is a little bit behind on its artificial intelligence in natural language processing, or NLP. Uh, so they've teamed with Amazon at this point in time. 
And look, and I can't help but think that Amazon is using it as a Trojan horse to understand more what's inside the house of uh, someone like uh, you know, the customers that Amazon have. And, and, and it wouldn't even surprise me if, because Amazon doesn't have much of a, a social position, if Facebook and Amazon uh, link in some more of a commercial fashion going forward now that Amazon is looking to more strongly enter the grocery space since their acquisition of Whole Foods for $14 billion in the US last year. So you'll be able to effectively just say, call up, call mum on, on Facebook and you'll be able to talk to her on the screen. Right? Yeah, that's, that's right. You'll the... say, yeah, hey, Portal, call mum, hey, Portal, call Alan Kohler, and you'll be able to have that screen come up and you'll be able to call them either through their own portal or their mobile device, whichever one connects them via Facebook, so long as they've got the settings in place and have a conversation. So it's not much different to what we already have on our smartphones. It's just that it's a permanent device which uh, they, they want to have people have sitting in their lounge rooms or their kitchens or wherever they're going about doing their business. Uh, how much is it? So I know how much I'm saving by not buying one. Uh, <laughs> so it's coming in at the first model is coming in at $200 US. It'll only be pre-orders are now being taken in the US for it. They haven't mentioned launches in outside of that, but I, I can imagine that if it works, it'll get rolled out pretty quickly. So the entry-level price you know, is probably, what, $240 Australian AUD. So that's the kind of yeah. saving you're headed for, Alan. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Great to talk. <laughs> no worries. Cheers, mate. Happy birthday, Paul Simon, turned 77 on Saturday. Let's all go to Graceland. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. That's all from me. Have a great week.